Gethsemane. It's a word not used in Luke 22. I'm borrowing Gethsemane because Matthew and Mark and the other Gospels, they, they speak of this scene which here Luke calls a place in the Mount of Olives. But it's the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus' agony is what we read. And we need to see it. We need to see His agony. You should not turn away from this. It's a scene where we read of the disciples' failure. We need to see that too. Gethsemane is a scene where we listen to the prayers of Jesus. We hear His words and we need to behold His faithfulness because He warned His disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Writing in the 1800s, J.C. Ryle wrote, The history of our Lord's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane is a deep and mysterious passage of Scripture. And I think Spurgeon has much to add when he says, We come to what we might call the holy of holies of the Lord's life on earth. A mystery like that which Moses saw when the bush burned with fire and was not consumed. Spurgeon says, no man can rightly expound a passage such as this. It's a subject for prayerful and heartbroken meditation more than for human language. And yet we know that we are limited to our human language to describe the wonder and power of what we see. May we with Spurgeon adopt a posture of heartbroken meditation, knowing that even our words fail to fully capture what we are reading We already know, according to the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus is a man of prayer. So coming to a scene where Jesus prays, that does not take us by surprise. He taught His disciples about prayer. The four Gospels tell us many times when Jesus was at prayer. We know that in this third Gospel, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus prays at very particular junctures of the story where major things are going on. An example would be early in Luke 3, where at his baptism, Luke tells us Jesus was praying in Luke 3.21. Right before Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am, followed by who do you say that I am, it says he was praying before he asked them. In Luke 22.31, Jesus told Simon he was praying for him, for Simon and the disciples would be sifted, sifted by the evil one. On the cross, Jesus will pray. He will say things like, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We know that Jesus is a man of prayer. He taught His disciples to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven. He gives a parable about persisting in prayer. This widow who would go before the judge looking for mercy. In Luke 18, verses 1-8, to Jesus tells that parable so that we would persevere in prayer for mercy. He tells of a, par- of a story where a Pharisee and a tax collector go into the temple. And it was the tax collector who was delivered, who prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We see that Jesus teaches about prayer, models prayer for his disciples on multiple occasions. And here we come to a scene that is striking an arresting of the soul in a way that I don't think his previous prayers quite so capture. There's a scene here of emotion and proximity to the cross that heightens these words. Jesus is praying so near the cross. 
He's praying so near the time when he will be betrayed and then delivered up. Where the Jews will condemn him and the Romans will crucify him. And and it's not that we should never pay attention to prayers that people pray around us. But especially in certain circumstances, in near suffering and proximity, the things people pray might stand out to you with a kind of starkness that otherwise you might look over or not pay as close attention to. So given what's coming, what is it that Jesus says and does? Well, the location matters. We're told in verse 39 that he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. What's recently happened on that late Thursday evening is they have left the upper room in Jerusalem where the Passover meal had been enjoyed. Where Jesus spoke of his body and blood and the bread and the cup. And where he had listened to his disciples gripe and argue about who was the greatest in the kingdom. All after Jesus had spoken that a betrayer was among them. It tells us here in verse 39 that they have left this place for sure. And they had traveled to the Mount of Olives. And on the western slope of the Mount of Olives was a place called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane means olive press. An olive press. It's an olive orchard. So let's connect together. Mount of Olives. Thinking together of Gethsemane, which means olive press on the western slope. This is an olive orchard on the western slope of what was called the Mount of Olives. And this was in his first time there. His disciples didn't say, Lord, where are you taking us now? What does Luke twenty-two thirty-nine say? It was his custom. This was not just a custom of Jesus this day, as if they had just been back and forth from the western slope. We should understand Jesus has gone throughout the week into Jerusalem, then leaving Jerusalem to the western slope of the Mount of Olives. It's his custom there. This is why Judas knows where to go. Judas wasn't going with the guards and the mob all around Jerusalem saying, we're not stopping until we find him. And if we look long enough and far and wide enough, we'll come across. Judas knows exactly where to go. And Jesus knows that Judas knows. Jesus is not avoiding the betrayal. He knows it is all part of the plan for his being delivered up on behalf of sinners. So he goes, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. To the western slope where the Garden of Gethsemane was. Jesus does not avoid it. He goes there with deliberation. One foot in front of the other, closer now to the cross than ever before. And what verses 40 through 46 give us is a scene where words are exchanged. Words are exchanged between Jesus toward his disciples, Jesus to the Father, later Jesus to his disciples again. But notice the beginning and the ending of our scene in verses 40 and 46. In verse 40, he says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And in verse 46 at the end, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. It is significant that the beginning and the ending of the words in this scene are a call to prayer that they might not be overcome by temptation. This instruction to the disciples in verse 40 is what we turn to now when they came to the place. Which means this garden of Gethsemane as was his custom previously. And this call to prayer was probably not something unusual either. We can imagine that the disciples had shared times of prayer here. Times of instruction here. 
times of relaxation and levity there. Here in this Garden of Gethsemane, due to the proximity of the cross and the hour, he says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And I wonder if you would be willing to consider that the Garden of Gethsemane, of all the things that it is, it is certainly a scene of temptation. This will help us understand the prevailing faithfulness of Jesus and the failure of the disciples. This place matters. This garden scene where temptation language is used in verse 40 and in verse 46. This is a scene framed with temptation. And Jesus seems to exhort them in the following way. In the face of temptation, we must be those who are looking to, turning to, hoping in, trusting in God. That's what it means to pray that you may not enter into temptation. It seems that entering into temptation means that you are being consumed by it. Entering into temptation means not just that you face a temptation, but that you have gone the way of the snare. You have entered into the trap. Maybe what's come to your mind is the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus told His disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. In verse 40, he has in mind the application of that earlier instruction. They will need to be people of prayer who are watchful and wakeful because Jesus himself and the disciples are going into a garden scene where there is temptation. And that's not the first garden scene where there was temptation. And what will matter for us is to see this last Adam faithful in a garden, whereas the first Adam in a garden failed. It matters that in this garden, in the face of this temptation, that there is an obedience and a commitment to the will of God and not a deviation from what would honor God. So they came to this place and Jesus' instruction echoes what we saw in the previous chapter. Chapter 21, he told them in verse 36, stay awake at all times. And of course, he doesn't mean physically. How could any of us stay awake physically at all times? Your body's just going to give out and collapse. You can't just sustain that. Though coffee and, and other things can just help sustain it for a long time. You must get sleep. Jesus can't therefore mean stay awake at all times physically. But he is saying that in our waking hours, we are called to a spiritual watchfulness always. A wakefulness because we live in a world where there are principalities and powers, temptations and snares, and our hearts might be prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And he says, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength. He says in verse 34 of Luke 21, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down. He doesn't want the suddenness of temptation to overcome them. He doesn't want the the internal instincts of self-preservation and comfort and fear to determine what they do next. He wants them to trust God. But to be a people who are trusting God, they must be a people who are praying unto God before arriving at temptation altogether. If they're not a people who are turning to God, walking before God, seeking to turn from sin in the hour of temptation, why would we expect faithfulness when we have not walked in faithfulness prior? 
We would expect to be consumed. We're not coming strong and wise in the Lord. We're not empowered by His Spirit, bearing His fruit with the eyes of faith to discern truth from error, temptation from God's promises. We are walking in folly. It is expected that in such moments, our lack of faithfulness, our lack of watchfulness will have consequences of devastation and destruction. So he says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Oh, dear friend, if you would own to the depths of your being the reality that for us to be faithful, growing Christians, looking unto Jesus, turning from sin, we must be people of prayer. And not occasional, random, haphazard, when it crosses our minds at some point kind of prayer. But deliberate, preparatory prayer. Jesus is going into the garden and with his disciples, he wants them to prepare ahead of time. Prayer is not something we first do when we find ourselves in the temptation, but even preparing our hearts for the battles we face. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus has been praying ahead of time too. He says in verse 31 of this chapter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you all. That he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. Jesus has been showing dependence and prayer. A posture of trust. And in verses 41 and 42. Let's listen to his prayer specifically. He withdrew from them. Luke summarizes a lot just then. The other gospels give us a little more detail. He took a few of them. Peter, James, and John a little farther from the rest And then left those three and went a little farther himself. So borrowing from the other Gospels, reading that into Luke 22, that's the the scene before us. And he came and he said, uh, he goes about a stone's throw and he knelt down. You should know that the normal posture in Jewish prayers was not kneeling, prostrate and with your head to the ground. Instead, the normal posture of prayer was standing with upheld hands. When somebody was kneeling in prayer, it it, it indicated a a, a special kind of urgency and desperation. Not because we're never desperate in prayer otherwise. That you can't stand and be desperate. It is to say, though, that kneeling is a way of even my whole body trying to communicate with all that I am, with my words and my figure, just on the ground before you, God. We're reminded of the book of Daniel when in Daniel 6.10 He would go to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber and he would get down on his knees three times a day and he would pray. We're reminded of people like Ezra and Ezra 9 with the people. And Daniel and Daniel 6.10, Jesus kneels down and he prays in the face of temptation. Jesus is modeling, embodying what he had earlier told his disciples. Notice Jesus didn't say earlier, you all need to watch and pray. I don't know what that's going to be like. You all need to be wakeful and pray that you might not enter into temptation. That's not for me though. Just for the rest of you. Jesus instead is being watchful and wakeful. Praying in this garden of Gethsemane. Because Jesus is truly divine and truly human. And in his genuine true humanity... He must ensure that he is being faithful and submitting his will to God. And that is the scene here we read. 
This episode is illustrating the wakeful, watchful language of Luke 21, 34 through 36. His own example. This episode includes this prayer in verse 42. And this prayer is not repeated in this Gethsemane scene. What I mean is this prayer is repeated in the others. The other Gospels give us three times Jesus is praying this. Luke is doing, giving us this once in verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Why is he speaking about a cup? We've recently considered the Passover scene. This is not the first time he's spoken about a cup in this chapter. He was earlier at a table, wasn't he? And he said, this is my bread and this is my blood of the new covenant, which is given for you. The blood that would be poured out on the cross was Jesus dying in the place of sinners bearing their judgment. And that is what the metaphor of the cup represents in the Old Testament background. The cup. The cup was not the manner of crucifixion. It's divine judgment. And this is so important because there's someone crucified on his left and someone crucified on his right. There were people crucified before Jesus and after Jesus. But Jesus drank a cup. This cup here is a metaphor of the wrath of God which sinners deserve and which Jesus says, I take the cup for you. But in his humanity, Jesus is consumed with trepidation and sorrow and trembling. We know this because of the Gospels like the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. In Mark 14, we're told Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Mark 14, 33. And he even said to his disciples before departing from them a little farther, he said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. When we read about this, this is not Jesus according to his divinity. But in his genuine humanity, we're looking at the person of Christ in his humanity, trembling, coming nearer and nearer the cup. And he says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This language is often connected to the psalmist in Psalm 42, for example, who speaks of his soul trembling and sorrowful, downcast and overwhelmed. Or language like Psalm chapter 55 Where this psalmist, like the psalmist in Psalm 42, is speaking about what he is enduring. Like a psalmist, Jesus is speaking in his overwhelmed and trembling state. He says, the psalmist does in Psalm 55, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I'm restless in my complaint and I moan. In verse 4, My heart is in anguish, in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. That psalm is from David. And Jesus, the son of David, the Davidic king, is facing temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Will he continue to show faithfulness? Will he continue to be steadfast and persevering? We know that this prayer is not sinful. It couldn't be. For Jesus to pray this is no lack of faith or an expression of unbelief instead. If Jesus failed to trust, if Jesus did hear in this prayer what would be sinful, then in Jesus committing sin, we would have no faithful substitute. Jesus himself would need atonement. He would be no means of atonement for sinners himself. So we read this in light of what all the Gospels, and especially the book of Hebrews, teach us. That throughout his entire life, Jesus lived without sin. This is a prayer in Luke twenty-two forty-two that is prayed without sin. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. What is Jesus overwhelmed by? I don't think it's quite right to say that the manner of crucifixion was overwhelming to him. He says, remove this cup. The reference to the cup, I think it ties us to what Jesus in his humanity knows. He will will experience on the cross. Not only will he be crucified, he will bear the judgment of God. There would be nothing in his human nature that would incline toward judgment. He's never turned from God. He knows nothing by experience of sin. I think John Calvin is right when Calvin says, Those who imagine that the Son of God was exempt from human passions don't truly acknowledge him to be a man. Sinclair Ferguson is a writer who says, Why does Jesus pray this? Because a holy man will never desire divine judgment. How could he? If desire according to nature is expressed, then there's nothing in the holy and righteous nature of Jesus that would incline toward divine judgment. He's never done anything dishonorable or displeasing. This is not a scene of rebellion. If it were, Jesus has sinned and is no sinless Savior dying on the cross. This is a prayer like the psalmists of old who are overwhelmed by the magnitude of what they face. And yet, and yet, who in the magnitude of what they face resolve themselves to God. What does Psalm 42 say? Put your hope in God, the psalmist says to himself. I will again praise you. And we see the same thing in David's psalm in Psalm 55. These are prayers where Jesus embodies in his genuine humanity the overwhelming prospect of the cup and resolves himself to God. Look at the language. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We must affirm in light of this that Jesus in his divine nature and in his human nature, he bears two wills. And this is Jesus once again resolving and committing with utter faithfulness his human will to the plan of redemption. He will not deviate. He will not rise from this garden and run. He will not. It is forward and onward. It is to the cross. We are reminded that in the wilderness, 
where Jesus was told by the evil one a variety of things. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, Jesus is the Son of God. That's why he says, Father, in his very prayer, it implies who he is. And while the devil, and even in those earlier scenes of temptation, would seek to derail Jesus away from the path of the cross, here in this garden, Jesus shows again resolution for the cross. Temptation as the Son of God. What we need to behold is his faithfulness and his commitment. In verse 43, Luke tells us something here that is not told in the other Gospels. And it's actually at the literary center of the whole passage. I mentioned earlier how the beginning and the end are all about language of praying and temptation. You see that in verse 40. You see that in verse 46. And what's Jesus doing? Praying in the face of temptation. And he will not fail. In fact, while he is feeling overwhelmed and he is kneeling before the magnitude of what he is facing, it says in verse 43, there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. I love this scene. This is amazing. In Mark 1.13, we're told in Mark 1, Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days tempted by the devil and the angels were ministering to him. That in the face of temptation, God provides strength. He can trust the Lord. In fact, in the Old Testament, angels come to minister over and over again to those doing the will of God. Elijah the prophet is in 1 Kings 19. And in 1 Kings 19, 5. And in verse 7, an angel of the Lord appears once and also twice to strengthen Elijah. In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him. In Daniel 10 verse 16, Daniel is overwhelmed by what he sees in a vision. And a figure touches Daniel and strengthens him. And Daniel says, I was strengthened. Multiple times in the Old Testament, a divine angel comes. And one of the promises in Psalm 91 is the following. In Psalm 91.11, the psalmist says, God will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So there is a promise of angelic strength and protection. And what's fascinating about that psalm is the devil tried to use that psalm in Luke chapter 4 against Jesus. He took him to the pinnacle of the temple and he said, cast yourself down. Because doesn't the Bible say, doesn't the psalmist say that if you cast yourself down, the angels will come for you. But Jesus will not be entrapped like that. He will rightly apply and embody the word of God. And Jesus knows the angels will come with strength and comfort. And it will not be the way of the enemy. It will be found in obedience to God. In Luke 4, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down and the angels will bear you up, lest you strike a foot against a stone. The the devil wanted Jesus to do what would have been rebellious and then to presume on heavenly protection. Jesus is walking in faithfulness, holding to the promises, committing himself to the will of God. And what do we find in the Garden of Gethsemane that night in verse 43? An angel from heaven strengthening him. Power when there is weakness. Sufficient grace in the face of what is trembling and overwhelming. So in verse 44, in being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. 
The agony of Jesus is being described in verse 44 with zeal and earnestness in prayer. It is striking to me how committed he is not only to the will of God, but to the very task of prayer. He is not settled in his heart and soul with saying, if you are willing, take this cup from me. He continues to pray. He continues to resolve himself. He continues to demonstrate faithfulness and steadfastness. Luke tells us something the other Gospels don't at the end of verse 44. His distress is intense. His agony is great. It tells us that his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. This has received some attention from commentators over the years on Luke's Gospel. What exactly is meant by sweat like drops of blood? Because there can be a rare medical condition where actual blood is sweated. The majority of scholars seem to think, though, that this is a simile. Where he's being com- his sweat is being compared to something. And I'm leaning toward that this morning. When it says his sweat became like great drops of blood. It didn't say his sweat was drops of blood. It became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. What are we to imagine in this scene? Such profuse sweating and intense agony that these things go together like somebody had gashed a wound and blood begins to flow. In other words, if you were to look at the sweat of Jesus, he is not only soaked with it, he is dripping with it. It is just running off of him. The intensity of this moment, the resolve he's feeling, the overwhelming magnitude of the cup and the cross, the judgment of God. It tells us in Psalm 55, 4, words that might have expressed the heart of Jesus. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen on me and fear and trembling have come upon me. When it tells us here then in verse 44 that these were like great drops of blood falling down to the ground, this may likely be profuse, drenched sweat speaking of a situation of intensity. You've probably been in situations working or running or moving or overwhelmed by the heat in the room where you thought, I am just dripping with sweat. This is an extraordinary amount. This isn't even a normal. And because of the anxiety of the moment or the circumstances that are intense and your body's reactions to it, this here all combining in a scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, that explains verse 44. What I love here is the example of Jesus that when his, when his trembling and agony increased, his praying did not decrease. His intensity of the situation is what it is. So what ought it to be met with? Intensity of prayer. Not a disproportionate situation. Where somebody is facing great agony and therefore very little commitment or turning to God. This, behold friends, behold the Lord Jesus in the garden praying earnestly in his agony. An increase in our distress should not mean a decrease in prayer. Let us meet the agonies of life and the intensities of circumstances and the overwhelming terrors that surround us. Let us meet them with intensity and zeal and earnestness of prayer. Because of what we believe about God. Because of who we believe God is. 
and what we know God is working all things for, we can look to God and meet all of the agonies of life with a commitment to prayer. God will bless it. Let us look to Him in our agonies and distresses. Jesus has said, be watchful. Jesus has said, be wakeful. Pray that you might not enter into temptation. And Jesus is living out His own teachings. He's not telling any of us to do what He has not already done. He embodies a brilliance and a wisdom in the garden here. And in verses 45 and 46, the last part of our scene is when He rose from prayer. He came to the disciples and He found them sleeping for sorrow. I think this is Luke's way of saying they're overwhelmed too. They're overwhelmed. They're tired. This is way into the night. And they may have been up a lot already during the week with Jesus. And the week's not over yet. There's more overwhelming things on the way. Just minutes later. The magnitude about things may have seemed overwhelming. It's just going to increase. And these disciples, in the face of the increasing distress of the moment... They are not meeting that moment with watchfulness and prayer. They're sleeping. They're sleeping. One writer is correct when he says this sleep seems to be a sign of their moral exhaustion and ineptitude. Not just physical tiredness, but a lack of vigilance when vigilance was needed, a lack of prayerfulness when prayerfulness was so vital. He found the disciples sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray. Luke tells us, rise and pray. And the other Gospels remind us, the, this conversation, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray. This happened again and even a third time. You would think after Jesus roused them from sleep once, they would look at each other and say, we've got to stand up or something. Sit on the ground or lean on one arm. We're just, we're going right out. The moment we're just succumbing to it, we have to, we have to be wakeful. And then after the second time Jesus comes to them in Matthew and Mark, you would think they'd say, this is enough, this is enough, this is enough. What are we doing? What are we doing? Here we, we are not rising to the moment. Our Lord Jesus, He's heading to the cross and He's got the cup and the bread and all of this talking about His body and His blood and a new covenant. We've got to be watchful and wakeful. But over and over again, over and over again, the one who meets the moment in the garden is Jesus, not the disciples. Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Garden of Gethsemane is a scene of temptation. And the disciples are faltering. But Jesus does not flee. He remains steadfast and focused and resolved. He calls us to be wakeful and spiritually vigilant. And he himself embodies that, he himself embodies that in the garden. What he says in Mark's gospel is profound. He says, because the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. And that's how we know he's not merely talking about physical exhaustion. He's talking about a spiritual sensitivity to that times. He's talking about looking in our hearts and our lives around us and seeking to be spiritually wakeful and praying unto God because we would know that in our right and sound thinking, we would be surrounded by temptations and snares. 
We might often ask for our circumstances to change. Often things to be directed and reoriented this way and that. And I'm not saying it's wrong to pray that way. But when you read the Apostle Paul praying for the saints in Corinth and in Philippi and in Thessalonica, he never prays for them that their circumstances would be different. He prays that their love would abound, that their faith would spread, that they would be people of peace, that they would walk faithfully, holding to the gospel. The Lord may change our circumstances or He may not. But what kind of people are we going to be? The psalmist says to himself, because sometimes, friends, you've got to say it to yourself. Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. Because you're feeling overwhelmed and you're feeling downcast. Friend, you need to think of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. I wonder if Paul thought of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane when he had a thorn in his flesh. He may have put it this, this way. Lord, if you're willing, remove this thorn from me. Lord, if you're willing, remove this thorn from me. Lord, if you're willing, remove this thorn from me. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, three times I prayed for it. And the answer from God is, I'm strong when you're weak. You need to trust me. My grace is sufficient when you can't feel it. You need to trust me. You see, the Garden of Gethsemane is not only a place where we behold the faithfulness of Christ, we can be encouraged in our own prayerfulness and in our own watchfulness. And so that when we even sense in our lives how we can fall short and even amid our many failures, the ground of our hope in Gethsemane remains Christ. The unwavering Christ. The Lord will bring us through. The Lord will bear you up and the Lord will not forsake you. He didn't look at his disciples and say, I'm out of here, guys. No. He was there for them. And he was there for us. Christ took the cup. In Luke 22, this is not the story of another Adam's sin in a garden. That's the beginning of the Bible. Those opening chapters do tell of sin and transgression. But this garden scene, this, this is the last Adam. The one whose faithfulness and glory and wisdom and goodness and righteousness are never compromised. It is his faithfulness. Believers, we will dwell in everlasting life with God because Jesus did not fail in Gethsemane. Let's stand together as we pray.